The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for every word that we have in the sacred scriptures. And we're so thankful, Father, for Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, and this teaching on the millennial reign. I pray, Lord, you be gracious with us this morning, regardless of what we've been taught or the amount of confusion surrounding this passage. I pray, Lord, that its true purpose and its true meaning would come out, and that is for your church to be resilient and your church to faithfully proclaim the gospel. I pray you would do that, Father, so that you would be glorified here in this place through Christ Community Church, and that you would find here brothers and sisters bound together by the blood of your Son, remaining resilient and steadfast in an ever-darkening world. And I pray you would give us clarity today and encourage us today to truly take the gospel to the nations, to see the mission field we have right here in our own backyard, to think of our family and friends who do not know you, and, and as we pray for and support and send out missionaries throughout the world, we praise you for this being a time of salvation. And so I ask, Lord, for this text to be an encouraging text and a missional text above all else, regardless of our position on the millennial time. We ask, Lord, that you would use your Holy Spirit right now um, to help us to hear and even more importantly, Father, to be changed. Uh, we want to be transformed even this morning more and more into the image of your Son. Only you can do that. Do not let this be a time, Father, when we hear and we leave unchanged. Instead, I ask that you be gracious to change each and every one of us and then change us collectively as a family that we might be transformed by your word. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So if you're not in Revelation chapter 20, please open up your Bibles to that chapter. If you know Revelation 20, um, <laughs> you knew we were going to get here at some point in time. Um, this is the, known as the great millennial passage. Uh, interestingly, with all the discussion and debate around the, what's called eschatology or the end times, this is the only place in the entire Bible that talks about the millennial reign. Um, there are other passages that allude to it, maybe, but this is the only place. Um, and so we want to handle it, I hope, with great care and with great humility. Um, I obviously have a particular um, theological position on it, which I've been teaching now for 30-plus weeks in the book of Revelation, so it won't be new to you. Um, but my hope is that, that the Word of God will speak to us as God intended when he revealed it to the Apostle John. Um, some say it's not, a really, it's not a big deal how you land on the millennial reign. I don't, I don't agree with that, only because how you interpret the book of Revelation is tied to your understanding of the millennial reign. How the end of God's story plays out is tied to your understanding of the millennial reign. And I would go so far as to say your understanding of God's working in human history is tied to your understanding of the millennial reign. Now, I, I don't think it should divide Christians. I really don't. I think that you can worship and join a church and have a, a different perspective on the end times. But that said, it doesn't make it not important. I think it is important, and of course we would say it must be because it's in God's word, right? And God's word, obviously, is important. So if you know anything about this, and I'm going to try to be really careful here not to go into a very long discussion on this, there are four 
there are four big perspectives when it comes to this idea of the millennial reign or the thousand-year reign of Christ. There's the post-millennial perspective, and obviously post, that means that they believe that um, Christ will come after this supposed reign. They, most post-millennials take a symbolic perspective on it, as we do, as all millennial people do. Um, but they, they see this thousand-year symbolic time on earth of one of prosperity and success where it's actually called the golden age. So when Christ comes back, the, per, the, the, church, the, the church and the world will be nearly perfect. Um, the all-millennial perspective, which is what I've been teaching now for several weeks, um, all-millennial is not a good word because all means not, so not millennial, which is not good because we do believe in a millennial reign. We just believe it to be symbolic. Um, I think a better would be realized millennial or now millennial, that it's taking place in between Jesus' resurrection and his coming again in glory. And so everything we've been looking at in Revelation is happening now and will happen until he comes. Uh, the third major camp is known as the premillennial or historic premillennialism, and that obviously they believe that Christ will return before the millennial reign, hence the term pre. Um, they argue that he'll come back and, and he'll reign on earth physically. Some say with the martyrs who were, who were killed during this time. Some say with all the church, he'll rule for a thousand years and then Satan will be released and there'll be a final end. Um, that's the idea of historical premillennialism. Um, very popular in the United States is a, is a form of premillennialism called dispensationalism. Um, it, it argues in a very similar fashion that Jesus will come at the end and he will reign for a thousand years. But they, have, they argue something called uh, dispensational periods, and that's how they see all of God's human history. They also argue for a secret rapture, and they argue for almost a separate salvation for the Jews. And so it has its distinct little category, but very popular here, probably something you've been exposed to. Um, now, all four views... All four views base their perspective on the word of God. So every single view is arguing from a variety of different scriptures, this is why we believe what we believe when it comes to the millennial reign of Christ. That being said, I would argue that only the historical premillennial view and the amillennial view, I think, are faithful to the entire word of God and to the historical perspective. So 2,000 years of church history. Postmillennialism, as practiced today, did not come into the history of the church until the 17th century, which is really late. That means the church got it wrong for a long time. The dispensational perspective didn't come in until the 19th century, which means we really got it wrong for a long time. Um, besides that, though, each, both the postmillennial and the dispensational perspective, when you look at the totality of scriptures, they have real shortcomings when it comes to interpreting different texts. And so that said, as I, as I work through this millennial passage today, um, from an all-millennial perspective, because that's my theological take on it, I'm going to give you some very brief commentaries on why I did not land, and I would not encourage you, at least at this point, to land on the historical premillennial perspective. But more importantly, listen, <clears throat> the impact of this passage is not to enable you to say, I'm post-millennial, pre-millennial, amillennial, dispensational. That's not the intent. That's not why it was given to John. This passage was given to the church so the church would do two things. One, stay the course in Christ because Christ wins and Satan loses. And even more importantly, I, I, I'm beginning to conclude now after this past week, this is a missional passage. 
This is a passage for the church to go and take the gospel to the nations because Satan is in fact bound. And so when you get to this, at the end of this, my hope is that you're thinking, remain steadfast and preach the gospel. And if that's what you believe, then you can be post, pre-mill, dispensational, ah-mill. You can be whatever you want. This is where you end up at the end of verse 10. Um, It's certainly, this passage was not given to divide the church. That was not its purpose. It was given for us to remain faithful. So let's do that this morning. Let's become more steadfast in Christ, and let's become more missional in our preaching of the gospel as we look at this very famous millennial passage. So the title of the sermon is Life in the Millennium. Life now, because I believe that the millennium started started when Jesus rose from the dead and will end when he comes back. So we're in it. I would say we're in it, and we're probably closer toward the end of it. Personally, I would argue that. Um, So let's become more steadfast and more missional by looking at the church's call to do three things. Number one, the call to proclaim because Satan is bound. Number two, the call to remain specifically steadfast because Satan's going to be destroyed. And number three, the call to reign. The call to reign with Christ because we haven't followed Satan into destruction. Okay, so the call to proclaim, the call to remain, and the call to reign. That's a nice little rhyme for you. You can remember that. It's a mnemonic device for you. The theme of the sermon is this. Stay the course. Satan's loss is the church's gain. Stay the course. Satan's loss is the church's gain. And oh, do we gain in Christ. So let's look at point number one. Point number one, the call to proclaim. Look at verse one with me. Verse 1 and following. Then I saw an angel, this is John speaking, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So here you go, Here's, here's your introduction. That's the thousand years, that's the millennium, right? This period of time that's raised so much discussion over the centuries. So John gets another vision. He sees an angel, and this angel, this angel has a key, quite a fantastic key. It's a key to, to this symbolic place of holding a bottomless pit where Satan is going to be bound in some capacity, and he's going to be bound by or restrained by this particular chain. Now, quite a sight that John enjoyed. The chain and the key to this pit to bind the dragon. Now you say, wait a minute, I, I remember the dragon, that's... We saw the dragon back in Revelation chapter 12 when he, when he fell down from the heavens. And, and John, he wants to make sure we know who this dragon is. He's the ancient serpent. That was the one in the garden who deceived Adam and Eve. He's identified as the devil. That's the slander of God's people. And he's identified as Satan himself. Now he said, I know that's the adversary of God and God's people. So this is the arch enemy of God and the arch enemy of the church that John is specifically talking about. Now, our premillennial friends, they believe that this thousand-year reign of Christ is taking place in chronological order. Now, this is, this is important, so really, you know, try to get this. Um, after, as we saw in Revelation 19, after the complete and total destruction of Babylon, that was the city of man and all those who followed Satan, and after the wedding feast of the Lamb, which we saw take place also in chapter 19. Now, one significant problem with this chronological ordering of chapter 19 and chapter 20 is that God's divine warriors destroyed 
all unbelievers on earth. Not only to destroy all those who are in rebellion against God, but we know that he redeemed the church, he married the church, and they're celebrating at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, if, if that happened, then the question becomes, why would Satan need to be bound if all the armies of his, all his armies have been destroyed and all God's people have been redeemed? What's the binding for? It seems like the, the battle was won and the victory is Christ and the church already. So the odd millennial view that I believe offers a, a much better understanding of this particular vision. Look again at verse 3. It says, The angel seized the dragon, verse 3, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he'll be released for a little while. So our premillennial friends argue that Satan cannot, they say, he can't be bound now. He can't be bound during this time as though in this particular millennial time. He cannot be bound because we see the New Testament talking about how much power he has. In fact, I've been preaching to you what? That the beast and the false prophet and all those who follow them have been inspired and influenced by who? By Satan, by the devil, by this dragon. So we've seen it throughout Revelation. And we, and we, we know even Jesus, in John chapter 12, Jesus said Satan is what? He's the ruler of this world. And then the same author of Revelation, John the Apostle, wrote in 1 John 5.19 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so our premillennial brothers and sisters say, listen, if, 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 he, if he rules now and he has power now, then certainly he can't be bound. He can't be bound and have power at the same time. And so they argue that this binding must be before Christ, um, after Christ comes again in glory. Um, the problem with that, if you remember from Revelation 12, in Revelation 12, um, the serpent is cast out of heaven. In fact, I'll read this to you, and, and this might make a little more sense to you. Revelation 12, verse 10 says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser, that's Satan, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, God's people, have conquered him, past tense, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. In other words, Satan being thrown out of heaven, he was thrown out, if you remember, because Jesus was victorious on the cross. And because Jesus was victorious on the cross, all those who put their faith in him were free of any accusation that, that Satan could make. There was no accusation that Satan could make against the church before God. Because why? All guilt had been removed. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, saints are no longer guilty. So we're free of accusations, which stripped Satan of his primary weapon. He is the accuser of the church. But because you are in Christ, you cannot be accused, and therefore his power against the church has been nullified. It's been rendered power less. So all millennials argue that Satan's, this symbolic imprisonment being chained in this bottomless pit, it doesn't mean that he's absent from the earth. Look at verse 3 again. It says that he can no longer deceive the nations. In other words, he no longer has free reign, monopolistic power to go about the earth keeping the nations bound to sin. Christ was victorious over him on the cross. Now, listen, this is, 
one of the reasons I believe your understanding of the millennial reign is so important. I want you to listen with all your might. With the victory of Christ on the cross, I believe Satan is bound right now. He's bound. He doesn't have the power he had before the cross. And that means, my beloved, that during this millennial reign between Jesus' resurrection and his coming in in glory, that means that the gospel can go to the nations and can save many. That's why I believe this text is primarily missional and not so much eschatological. Listen with me. This is, this is Jesus, Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Remember, he had, he had been doing miracles and he was accused by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was accused of doing miracles by the power of who? By the power of Satan. And then Jesus actually alludes to the fact that he's going to bind Satan and save people. Listen to this. This is Matthew 12, 29. Jesus said, how can someone enter a strong man's house, he's speaking of the earth, and plunder his goods, that's all those who are deceived, unless he first binds the strong man, and he's talking of Satan himself. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Then indeed Christ may do what? He may save the lost. And so even in Matthew 12, he's talking about this binding of Satan during this millennial age that this lost might be saved because Satan does not have monopolistic, deceptive power over the nations. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said this, very powerful verse, I think, from the all-millennial perspective. Now, not then, now is the judgment of this world. Now, not in the future millennial reign, now will the ruler of this world, Satan, be what? Be cast out. Say, well, wait a minute. When was Jesus talking about? He was talking about at the cross. He then said, then indeed, he said, Jesus said, then I will, I am lifted up to the earth. I will draw all people to myself. In other words, through his death and resurrection, he binds Satan. The gospel goes out and redeems many until he comes again in glory. I think that's, obviously, that's what I think this passage is saying. (laughs) I could be wrong. I mean, I absolutely could be wrong, but I I think that's what it's saying. You see, in in the Old Testament, salvation was for the Jews. It was for the nation of Israel. And and some were blessed to come into. They were proselytes, and they, they became Jews, and they entered into that. But before Christ came, the nations, and the Old Testament speaks to this, the nations were deceived. They did not know Yahweh. They did not know salvation. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, By him doing this great work on behalf of sinners like us, Satan's stranglehold of the nations, it's broken. And that means the gospel of salvation by grace through faith was able to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation and save many and still is today. This very hour, I believe Satan is bound, which makes the gospel and its ability to go out extraordinary. My beloved, this vision of Satan being bound right now during this present millennial reign of Christ, it's glorious news for the lost in your life. Is it not? It's glorious news for the lost all over the world. It means that salvation in Jesus is possible. It means it's possible right now for every single lost soul in your mission field. Every family member you know that does not know Christ, every coworker or friend that continues to rebel against God has the opportunity now, the power now in the gospel to be saved because Satan is bound. I think that text is teaching this. I think one of the reasons that Jesus gave us the Great Commission is not to 
give us an impossible imperative. I think he gave us the great commission to do what? To go to the nations and what? Make disciples, proclaim the gospel, teach them to obey all that he commanded. He gave us this great commission because Satan is no longer, has no longer monopolistic power over the nations. And so it's a great commission because it can be done. The gospel can go out and the gospel can save. And it doesn't mean that Satan has no power to deceive unbelievers. It means that Christ on the cross destroyed his monopolistic power to deceive the nations. Colossians chapter 2, Paul's talking about what Jesus did on the cross. Listen to this. If you want to think about binding a bottomless pit in this current millennial reign, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. By doing what? By chaining Satan and casting him into that bottomless pit so the gospel can go out now. And if that's true, my beloved, then, then we need to be bold, don't we? I mean, we need to be unhindered when it comes to bringing the gospel, certainly to all those that we know, all those that um, are beyond our reach that we can pray for as we do on Sunday mornings before church and we, we can send missionaries um, and, and maybe, maybe you can go. Maybe you can go during this time in which Satan is bound to those nations to bring the gospel to the lost. Why not you? Why not you? We, we know, we know, in fact, our lives, we're living testimonies to the fact that gospel can save. Are we not? If you know Christ, and you're here right now, you know who you used to follow. Paul made this very clear, Ephesians chapter two. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once what? in which you once followed the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. So at one point in time in this millennial reign, you were bound by Satan, you were deceived by Satan, but someone did what? Someone believed that the gospel has the power right now to save. Someone shared the gospel with you. Someone did, and oh, they're probably very precious to you. Someone shared the gospel with you. Someone told you about your sins. Someone told you about the absolute holiness of God. Then he was going to judge your sins. Someone told you about Jesus Christ as Savior. Someone told you and called you to repent and believe. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you did. You did. And you're here. And you're saved. You went from being deceived by Satan to being saved by God. You went from being in rebellion against God to now what? Living your whole life for God. What a transformation. You're living testimony to the power of the gospel right now. And this must be, my beloved, this must be the work of the church. There's so many things that we, we are to do as God's people. But the Great Commission is the Great Commission because we're about what? Proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. And if we as a church are not doing that, then whatever we're doing, we know, is not terribly pleasing to our Lord. The work of God is to take place now while the window of opportunity is still open. The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, listened to what he said. He said, if the Lord's work is worth doing, and I would say it is, he said, it's worth doing well. And since the servant of Christ is the highest work in which any man can be engaged, serving Christ, bringing the kingdom, 
He said the master ought to be served with body, soul, and spirit. Now listen to this. He said we do not wait for opportunities, speaking of the church. We do not wait for opportunities, but we accept the present event as an opportunity. He said we not only strike while the iron is hot, but we make the iron hot by striking it. Friends, I would argue that this present event of Satan being bound means the opportunity for the lost to be saved is never better. In all of human history, never a better time for the lost souls in your life or around the world to be saved than right now while Satan is bound. And if the iron of the gospel is hot, then we must make it hotter by what? By proclaiming it boldly to anyone and everyone who will listen. Strike it. Open your mouth. Make it hot. Pray for those who are doing the same throughout the world. Pray for them. Support them. And as I said earlier, maybe go yourself. Maybe go yourself. So the first point of this present millennial reign, I believe, is to tell us that it's a time to proclaim the gospel faithfully. Satan's bound. The gospel saves. Christ is still moving. Why are we so silent? Point number two. We are to proclaim, and in light of this current millennial reign, it's not post, it's not pre, but right now, I would argue that we must remain steadfast. Point number two, the call to remain. So if Satan is bound, look at the latter part of verse three. If Satan is bound so that, we might, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, it says after that, he must be released for a little while. Now, I don't know about you, but that should give you some chills going, oh, what? Wait, wait a minute. You have him bound, leave him bound. Don't let him go. Jump down to verse seven with me. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. That's the metaphoric, symbolic, bottomless pit, his inability to deceive the nations. He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, so all the world, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. Now, so we, one thing we know, and it doesn't matter what your eschatological perspective is, that this window of opportunity is going to end. It's not going to last. Satan's going to be released. He's going to have deceptive power again. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, um, it's uh, chapters where the prophet talks about Israel being attacked, the nation of Israel being attacked, specifically by two nations, Gog and Magog. Those are just great names for nations, aren't you? Where do you live? I live in Gog. Where do you live? I live in Magog. <clears throat> John uses these two, Gog and Magog, metaphorically here, not literally, but metaphorically, to identify all the nations rebelling against God at the end of human history. So again, this is the, the final battle, the last battle, by the nations, deceived by Satan against God and against his church. And, and Satan is released here to go convince them to engage in such a ridiculous battle, to engage in a losing battle. Now again, from a, from a premillennial perspective, this battle at the end of the millennium, it's difficult to place in God's redemptive history. In fact, this is, one, this is something I struggled with years ago when I was doing my seminary training first time around. Um, it, it makes for a disjointed storyline because we, as we, if we read it chronologically, chapter 19, we know the battle's over. Babylon was defeated. 
right? All those armies were defeated by, by who? By Jesus Christ coming on his white horse with the armies of heaven. We know that the, the wedding was consummated. The wedding feast is taking place. And so from a premillennial perspective, there was that battle, the final battle, and now we have a second final battle or a final, final battle, which is really strange when you look at the entire Old and New Testament because that storyline doesn't run with a second final battle. In fact, in both the Old and New Testament, this is one of the strongest arguments, I would say, for the amillennial perspective. In the Old and New Testament, there's one second coming, there's one final battle, there's one punishment of, of Satan and, and the beast and the false prophet, and, all, and there's one salvation of God's people, one resurrection, that's it, right? And so only here do we have this movement to kind of amend the story and bring a final, final battle or a second final battle. Um, makes it very difficult from an historical perspective. The amillennial perspective, though, this battle fits quite well because you say, well, I know what this is. This is the same battle we've been looking at. This is the battle of Armageddon, Revelation 16, Revelation 19. You've already taught it. You said that's recapitulation. You're just reiterating it. John is, not me. John's reiterating it from another perspective. And I believe you're absolutely right. I believe there's one final battle, and we've already seen it now multiple times. This time, though, we get to see the battle from the perspective of what happens to Satan, right? Before we talked about the beast and the false prophet and the nations, but now we're talking about Satan's role in it and his end in it. And so I think that's one of the reasons that that perspective is brought to us. So after being bound for this symbolic 1,000 years so the gospel could go forth, we're told that Satan is released for how long? It says for a little while. Praise God. Praise God it was just a little while. And once again, he's released to do the same thing he's always done, to deceive the nations and incite people to rebel against God. Right? This, is, this is what Satan does. He incites the nations to rebel against God and to persecute the church. So I think one of the things this clearly teaches, and the, the, the premillennial, dispensational, and amillennial all agree on this, that as we approach the actual second coming of Christ, the days are going to get darker that life's going to get harder on planet Earth. Nation after nation will be deceived by Satan because he's been released to do so. And nation after nation will eventually collectively gather and rebel against God and rebel against God's people. Now, throughout human history, Christians going through particularly difficult times have concluded, this must be the end. This must be the last of the last days. In fact, if you read throughout church history, many of our church fathers, brilliant theologians, concluded that. And obviously, we can look back going, well, obviously, they were wrong. At least in terms of time, they were wrong. Um, we are always in the last days. The last day started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, in the, the persecution of the early church, which was severe before Constantine came into power, they thought this must be the last days. Certainly, the darkness in the Middle Ages, many concluded, this must be the last days. The persecution by the reformers from the Catholic Church during the Reformation, many concluded, this must be the last days. During the 20th century, my beloved, many prominent theologians in light of World War I and World War II and the global death rate that we saw taking place concluded, this must be the last days. Certainly we're closer. We must be closer. Every day that passes, we get closer. I would, I would argue today, I think that in light of the global crisis that we're seeing 
when it comes to something, things as basic as um, the murder of innocent life, whether it be young or old, on a global scale, when we look at the radical perversion of gender and sexuality today on a global scale, when we look at the destruction of the family or even, as we prayed this morning, the extreme persecution taking place across the globe against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I think that in light of every single nation on planet Earth now being in either explicitly or implicitly against God, I think that that would lend itself for us to say, Maybe we're close to the last days, but we don't want to be historically ignorant and make that definitive statement. Um, we, we do want to be wise, but it's even more important, I believe, in light of this text, that we understand the reason for God releasing Satan. Why did he do it in the first place? Look at verse 9. It says, and they, that's Satan and the nations, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. That's the, if you remember, that's the metaphoric plain of Megiddo back from Revelation 16, and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. So, so there's a picture of the world, deceived by Satan, gathering together and coming against who? Against the church, against God's people in, in this last final battle. They're going to prepare, they're going to prepare to destroy the church, to exterminate God's people from the earth. But instead of Satan and the nations overcoming the church, what happens? Look at the latter part of verse 9. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Again, a bit anticlimactic. That's it. This great battle of Armageddon between good and evil, between Satan and his armies and and the church of Jesus Christ, God strikes them dead with fire from heaven. And so where's that imagery coming from? Again, that's coming from Ezekiel chapter 38 where this battle between Gog and Magog, God is saying, listen, Well, let me just read to you the prophecy and then I'll talk briefly about it. God said this to the prophet Ezekiel. said, I will summon a sword against Gog, the nation Gog, declares the Lord. I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur, verse 23, Ezekiel 38. So I will show, listen to this, so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of of many nations, then they will know that I am the Lord. You go, okay. So why did he release, why did he release Satan? Why did he allow the deceptions to be deceived? So God could be glorified. So God, in his vindicating, his love for his people and his love for the truth could be glorified in this final battle of Armageddon, destroying once and for all Satan and all his followers. That's why he's released for God's glory so he could send who so he could send the divine warrior on the white horse so he could send the armies of heaven to descend upon satan and his army and destroy them with what with the word of god with the breath of Jesus' mouth all that would glorify god look at verse 10 and the devil who had deceived them speaking of the nations was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. We saw that last week. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so, this is the end. (laughs) Again, this is the end. The end. The unholy trinity, the dragon, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are are all now residing where? They are all in the lake of fire. They're together once again, but not on earth. When they were on earth, they enjoyed power and opulence 
right? They had an opportunity to rule, but now they are together in the lake of fire where they will serve out their eternal term of torment. For how long? Forever and ever. Day and night, forever and ever, my beloved. So John sees this and he's telling the church this. He's telling the church in that first century and he's telling us now so that we can be wise. Things will become, I believe, things will become increasingly dark before Christ comes again. I do, I I believe that. I, I think that not just this passage, but certainly the New Testament teaches to that as well. Good will be called evil, and evil will be called good. Is that not what we see today? In the, at the top of the news, virtually every day, that which we know to be good is being advocated by the culture as evil, and that which we know to be evil is advocated by them as being good. The true church, the true church now, as we approach that day of Jesus' return, will be attacked. Already under attack, but there'll be a global attack from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming against God's people. And it will seem, and your postals will tell you this, that the church is doomed. I do, I, I like statistics, and I like to read about what the pollsters say about the church. And if you read some of these pollsters, you would think that the evangelical church, at least in the West, will be extinct in two decades. Interesting. That's not what it's saying here. John is saying, don't be fooled. John is saying, don't be fooled by what you see. Don't forget the promise. Who's coming for you? The divine warrior is coming for you. you. He's faithful and true. He will keep his promise. He will judge your enemies. He will redeem his people completely and perfectly. Why? Because he cannot forsake you. He cannot forsake you. Jesus Christ loves you so much. I mean, he gave his body and blood on the cross to have you. He's not going to let Satan, or he's not going to let the nations deceive you and take you back. He loves you too much. He will keep his promise to come for you and give you, adorn you in what? In fine linen, bright and pure, to make you ready for that wedding day. This is the purpose of this passage in the book, I believe. And it's real simple. You ready for some profound theology? In the end, Satan and his followers are defeated by Christ. In the end, Christ wins and Satan loses. In the end, those who follow Christ win and those who follow Satan lose. Now, my beloved, if, you have, if, that, if that's true and, and you believe that with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that knowledge is truly yours, then I would argue that there must be a supernatural peace in your life. There has to be. If you say Satan loses, Christ wins, I'm with Christ, I win, then there must be deep down in your soul and hopefully manifest every day a peace that what, as Paul said, transforms, transcends all understanding. There should be. It means even in the midst of your darkest days, when things are really dark, you know how the story ends. You know how it ends for Satan, and you know how it ends for you if you're in Christ. It means regardless of how powerful the enemy appears to be, even on the global stage, 
And it seems powerful right now. I'm going to be really honest. It seems powerful. You know the end. His end is the lake of fire. It's utter defeat at the hands of God. It means when the church seems powerless and small and going to be defeated, you know that cannot happen. It cannot happen, my beloved. What comfort this true peace of God, what comfort it must have had on those seven churches in Asia Minor we looked at in Revelation 2 and 3 who were being brutally persecuted by Emperor Domitian. What comfort to know this truth. Christ wins, Satan loses. What comfort it is, no doubt, for our brothers and sisters this very morning around the world in some of the most hostile cultures that are being persecuted right now. Some who are in prison, some who are being economically disenfranchised, some who are being put to death. This morning, what great peace this must bring to them. My beloved, you, you ought not be that hand-wringing Christian. You know, you know who you are. Constantly worried about the future. Here's a newsflash. It gets worse. You don't need to worry about what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Before Christ comes, it's going to get worse. Evil will spread, I would argue, on an unprecedented scale. But it will not last. Christ will come in the glory of his Father. Christ who is what? The light of the world and he will cast out all darkness. He will cast it out to the ends of the earth. John's vision should fill you with peace and if you have any wisdom from the Holy Spirit, I would say it should cause you to be resilient. Resilient. I I don't think I need to tell you that mankind's a bit fickle, are we not? We, we, We often change teams. Right, I don't know about, I'm old enough to remember when the Warriors were horrible. And the Warriors were a terrible basketball team. And now the Warriors are beloved throughout the nation. Hmm, wonder how that happened. Who did, they, who did those, those fans used to look at before the Warriors got good? I don't know if you remember when um, the number of Patriot fans that became Buccaneers fans when Tom Brady switched teams. We call those fair-weathered fans, right? We change teams midstream based upon who we think is winning at that point in time. So as Satan powers, as his power increases when he's released, deceiving the nations, and as the perceived power of the church decreases, many in the church will be tempted to leave Christ and join what they think is the winning team. They'll go back to the world. They'll go back to their old self their old identity. I'm telling you, that is a fatal mistake. If you base your allegiance right now upon what you perceive taking place in the world, then certainly the world looks stronger and the church looks weaker. When Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 was speaking of these last days, listen to what he said. He said many, he's talking about those in the church, many will fall away. Many inside walls just like this. Many will fall away. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So Jesus is saying this is going to happen. Don't be shocked. But then he says this, but the one who endures to the end will what? Will be saved. The one who remains steadfast, Christ says to me, you'll make it all the way in. Don't change teams. Don't be deceived. Evil will get worse. The church will seem doomed. But Christ says, in the end, I win. And if Christ wins, and you're in Christ, then you win too. 
So when you see, my beloved, your friends and family, when you see them getting their identity, their true identity from their work or their school or their material possessions, how much they have, or when your circle of friends, when they find their seeming joy in money or power or the number of followers they have in social media, and you think, wow, they're really happy. You must resist the temptation to follow them. You must remain resilient in finding your identity and joy in Christ alone. You must. When the world tells you that the greatest existential threat facing mankind is climate change and not the judgment seat of God, you must not listen. When the world tells you that the neighborhood you live in and the car that you drive and the people you associate determine your worth and not your relationship with God through Christ, you must not listen to them. You must not follow them. Jesus said the one who endures to the end will be saved, but the one who changes teams, the one who says enough of church, enough of Christ, and goes to the other side, well, your end will be with Satan and the beast and the false prophet and all those who have been deceived. Your end will be the lake of fire. That is the second death. John's vision, without question, is a call for the church to remain steadfast, even listen, when everything seems hopeless. It is a call to remain steadfast to Christ even when everything in your life, in the world, and even in the church seems hopeless. Remain steadfast. Amen? All right, so point number one, we're to proclaim the gospel because Satan is bound. Point number two, remain steadfast because Satan loses and Christ wins. And I want to give you one more. If I haven't excited you at all, this one is exciting. It's the call to reign. And you say, well, I like power. I want to reign. Be careful with that desire. <clears throat> In between John's vision of Satan being bound and being released is something in Scripture called a, um, a literary interlude. And it's, it's something that's squeezed in between um, really what's the, a holistic teaching. Um, and John sees this fantastic vision of thrones and and those seated upon the throne. Look at verse four. Jump back with me a little bit. John says, then I saw thrones and seated on them. Doesn't say exactly who, so there's some debate too. Seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, martyrs, either literally or symbolically, and for those for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And that would be, I would argue, that's the entire church throughout human history. And then John says, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So here again is that, that thousand year period. So John's vision of Satan being bound, released, and then his ultimate demise is interrupted I think by John seeing the church seated upon thrones, ruling with Christ. It's a magnificent vision. The thrones certainly are by the tens of thousands, regardless of how you land on who's seated upon them. And and many have argued for centuries now that these are the saints victorious. That's those who have died in Christ and gone to heaven 
and are awaiting his glorious return. Right now, we're saints militant, which means we're supposed to be fighting for Christ. When you die and go to be with Jesus, you become saints victorious because you won in Jesus. So all those, all the martyrs who who gave their life because of their testimony for Jesus or their, their obedience to the word of God, all those who refused the beast, all those who said, I will not take the mark, I will not be identified with this world, I will not bow down to idols, all those I believe John is now seeing seated upon thrones, no doubt surrounded, surrounding the throne of Christ. Again, it's this glorious image that's being given to him, those who have come to life to judge and reign with Jesus for a thousand years during the millennial reign. Um, it's a breathtaking contrast to the followers of Satan, is it not? A breathtaking contrast to those who were once in power on earth but now put to shame in a lake of fire compared to those who are oftentimes shamed on earth for our following Jesus but we are raised to power in heaven to reign with Jesus. Now our, our premillennial friends, they believe that that John here is talking about the physical resurrection either of, of literal martyrs or of the entire church. Um, some argue that it's, it's the martyrs that are rewarded. They gave their life for Christ, and so when Christ comes, this is the premillennial perspective, when he comes to reign on earth for that thousand-year period, physically Jesus reigning on earth, he said he's going to have the, the martyrs physically reigning with him on earth during that period of time. Um, I think there are some compelling reasons to reject that interpretation. First of all, the word thrones in the book of Revelation, it's always thrones in heaven. It's always thrones in heaven. It's never thrones on earth. So it's very likely that John is seeing thrones in heaven during this millennial reign. But even more so, what John sees what? What does he see? It says he, look with me, it says he sees souls in verse four. Not bodies. He sees souls in verse four. And, and most argue, and I would agree, that he's seeing um, those who have experienced the spiritual resurrection, that first resurrection, where on earth you die, your body goes into the grave, and if you're in Christ, your soul is raised up to be with Jesus right now, right? Um, and, and all the souls that are there with him, all those who have died in Christ, the saints victorious, they're waiting for Christ to return in glory, and when he does, then, then they'll get their new glorified bodies, Look at verse five with me. It said, the rest of the dead, that's those not in Christ, those who died in rebellion against God, the rest of the dead did not come to life. They do not experience that first resurrection, that spiritual resurrection. They did not come to life until the thousand years was ended. And then it says, this is the first resurrection, speaking of those who die in Jesus. This absent the body, but alive in Christ is what I believe to be the first resurrection or what we would call a spiritual resurrection. Um, something we will all experience if we die before Jesus comes. Now, if Jesus comes, then you're not going to experience that. But if he delays any longer and you, you give up your body, then your soul will go to be with Christ. Your spirit will go to be with Christ. You say, well, there, there are several passages that would allude to this. I think, I think the best one is, is Jesus' conversation with a thief on the cross. Right? Luke chapter 23, verse 43. You remember, one of the thieves, one of the two thieves actually comes to a saving grace, puts his faith in Christ, and Jesus says to him what? Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not his body. We know that the body of the thief was taken down and buried, but his soul 
went to be in paradise with the Lord. This is the first resurrection. It is the spiritual resurrection, and it is a necessary resurrection if you want the second. And the second resurrection is where your body and soul come together at the return of Christ so that you get your what? Your eternal glorified body that is equipped to reign in heaven and worship God for how long? Forever and ever and ever, right? So this first resurrection sets us up for the second resurrection. Um, Look at verse six. John then says this. He's giving us some more detail. Blessed, so here's another beatitude. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So that's the spiritual resurrection after you die, body goes to the grave, soul goes to be with Jesus. He says, over such the second death has no power. So those who experience the first resurrection, you won't experience the second death. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now the second death, we're gonna see this next week, that's, that's eternal damnation, that's the lake of fire. That's where Satan is, that's where the beast is, that's where the false prophets is, that's where all the nations who rebelled against God are dwelling, in the lake of fire. But for those who persevere to the end in a true saving faith, they will enjoy the first resurrection of their soul when they die, a resurrection, the second death, eternal death, has no power over. Now it's interesting, you say, well the second death, then what's the first death? Most people think it's, they'll just say, oh, it's, it's your physical death. But I don't think that's what it's alluding to here. Everyone dies spiritually, right? We're actually all born dead in our sins and transgressions. Paul says the uncircumcision of our flesh. And so everyone dies once because all are born into sin. The real question you want to ask yourself, my beloved, is am I going to die twice? Am I going to die twice? Everyone dies once because we're born into sin, and sin brings death. But will you experience the second death? Will you experience the lake of fire? Those who miss out on the first resurrection will. Those who leave this place, who die in this life, with no faith in Jesus Christ, do not receive the blessing of the first resurrection, which means the second death is theirs. It is judgment. It is the lake of fire. But then John tells us that if you die in Christ, not only do you get the first resurrection, which means you don't get the second death, you're not eternally judged. He says you get to, did you see this? You're raised as a priest of God and Christ and you'll reign with Jesus throughout the millennium. You say, well, that's, that's quite an upgrade. It's quite an upgrade from where I am right now. Instead of being judged, believers will reign with Christ as priests and judge during this millennial reign. It's a picture, my beloved, of the saints exalted. It's a picture of all those that, that died in Christ right now, being exalted with Christ, reigning with Jesus. What a beautiful picture. If you, if you have a loved one that, that passed, that knew the Lord, and I don't know what your image is, of their present state is, but it's really good. It's really, really good. They've been raised. They're with Christ. They're judging with Christ. They're reigning with Christ. They're interceding with Christ. What an amazing picture of those who have gone to be with Christ. And that's what John, I believe, is seeing here. They're, they're reigning with him right now. Um, 
again, there's such an extreme contrast, is there not, between the followers of Jesus and the followers of Satan. And, and I do believe that's why this literary interlude is placed there. It's to show us the contrast between the two. Those who reign on earth now with Satan, their sins will not be forgiven. They will miss the first resurrection and they'll be subject to the second death. Eternal judgment. Those who die in Christ now, now, will be forgiven of their sins. They'll enjoy the first resurrection. They will miss the second death and they'll reign with Christ. We, we couldn't get a more polarized picture of these two groups. The path and the person should be obvious to you if it's not already. The path and the person, the only hope of not experiencing the second death, of not experiencing the lake of fire, is the first resurrection. And the only hope you have of experiencing the first resurrection is Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. There is no other plan, there's no other purpose of salvation, there's no other way to avoid this. And we know that because we know what Jesus actually did on the cross. On the cross, we know that Jesus Christ took your second death. Well, usually when we think of Jesus dying on the cross, we think physical, don't we? We think his broken body, we think his spilled blood, and he did die physically. But infinitely worse and infinitely more significant on the cross is the fact that Jesus experienced your second death. He experienced the lake of fire. He took the wrath of God, so the fire of the wrath of God as it came down upon Satan and the nations, that came down upon Christ upon the cross as he was consumed by God's fury. During that three hours of darkness on the cross, it wasn't just his physical body that was dying. Jesus was experiencing your virtual equivalency of fire and sulfur. The second death that belonged to you for your rebellion against God, he received. He paid, as you know, your debt in full, he satisfied perfectly God's holy wrath for you and for me, so deserving because we were Satan followers, were we not? He took that so that he could give us instead eternal life. He took that upon himself out of his love for you so that you could have access to the first resurrection, so that you could be seated upon a throne with him, so that you could reign as a judge and priest with him, so that you could enjoy the second resurrection with an eternal body that dwells with God and worships God forever and ever and ever. This is the blessing of all who die with the testimony of Jesus and the word of God upon their lips. This is the testimony, my beloved. I've had the great pleasure of sitting at the bedside of brothers and sisters who have gone to be with Christ. And I'm amazed at the words coming out of their mouths. In their last hours as they're praising God, many singing hymns. I know where they were going. I had no doubt. They had refused to bow down and worship the beast. They had refused the mark of the world. That means, my beloved, to look like and live like the world. No distinction. The first resurrection will be the blessing and the assurance of the second. I want to close asking you a couple short questions. 
Do you have an assurance of that first resurrection right now? Do you know the first resurrection will be yours when you die? If today is your last day and Christ is yet to come and you die and your body goes in the grave, where does your spirit go? Will it go to be with the Lord? Will you reign with Christ? Will you be a priest and judge with Jesus? Do you have that confidence right now in the work of the Lord as evidenced in your life that you will reign with him then because he's reigning through you right now? Do you know that? Are you reigning right now with Christ as a priest? Remember, a priest's job was to to intercede on behalf of God before men. Are you reigning right now, actively praying for and pursuing the lost in your mission field, actively proclaiming the gospel to intercede for the lost while Satan is bound, yes or no? If you have an expectation of reigning with Christ as a priest, when you die, then certainly we should be reigning as priests of God now. Are you reigning as a judge now as you remain faithful to Jesus? Are you actively judging yourself, your thoughts, your motives, your life before God? Are you actively adjudicating the intentions of your heart, confessing your sins, turning to God, pursuing righteousness, So that when you die, my beloved, you will not be judged by God, but you will become a judge with Christ upon a throne too. Are you reigning now as a priest and a judge? Remember what Paul said. It's the end of our memory verse, not included. If we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we were judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Friends, the end of the millennial reign is fast approaching. You want to be ready for that day when Christ comes. You want to be proclaiming the gospel while there's still time. You want to be remaining faithful as the world gets darker and darker. Don't change teams. Don't make that mistake. And you want to do this, my beloved, so that you, certainly as a sinner deserving of the second death, will have and enjoy the first and the second resurrection. Reigning with Christ, not only in this age, but in the age to come. The person and the path are imminently clear. So I'll ask you the last question. How are you living your life in this millennial reign? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a profound passage. I pray, Lord, you'd forgive your church throughout the world for spending more time talking about how the story ends than our responsibility living in the midst of the story now. I pray you'd forgive us, Father, as a church. Use this passage to bring clarity to your millennial reign, but above that, Father, I pray you would use your words today to encourage my brothers and sisters to not only remain steadfast, to not change teams midstream, knowing that in Christ we win, but I pray, Lord, that you would open our mouths as a people. And because 
Satan is bound, I pray, Lord, that this week would be a week of great proclamation from your children here at Christ Community Church. That we would be professors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord, for this opportunity. We're thankful that you redeemed us during Satan's binding. Make us those faithful messengers too, I pray, as we take the gospel to all those in our mission field and by your grace and power throughout the world. Do this, Lord, as always for your glory. Be glorified now. Be glorified in this place. Be glorified in San Jose with the proclamation of the gospel and the multitudes being saved. Oh, Father, we long for that. As you do, thy will be done, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.